The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Berean Bible Church. Today, we're going to be looking at something that was raised, a question raised to me a few weeks back of what exactly is a sign of Jonah? Um, you kind of look at it and uh, in Matthew and Luke where it's mentioned, and as I, I kind of glanced at it and started thinking about it, I had never really given much thought to it, never stopped to say, you know, what exactly is it? You just kind of read through it. As I'm sure most people do, they read it, and then in Matthew at least, they it seems like there's a clear connection there. Uh, but I decided to see if there was any more to it. So in perusing through my various reference work, it became clear that it was not such a cut-and-dry case as it seems to be in the minds of some. Uh, but when I looked at all the commentators and things, the, the various books that I had, uh, the various there were various views, but the assumption that I had initially was the majority view, it appeared. And as most people seem to think, it, 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 it does have that as a majority view. But I decided to go a little further, dig a little deeper, and just started jotting down some notes along the way, and that ultimately is what you're going to be hearing me share this morning is some of the stuff that I had come to conclusions on. Now, we read this section in Matthew 12 earlier, but let's return there briefly to focus, to look at the focus of our study this morning. Now, Matthew's account tells us, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, the first thing I would like to briefly look at is how this verse appears in the other synoptic Gospels. Now, when it comes to the book of Mark, the verse is kind of truncated, and it says no sign will be given. It simply says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in the spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, does that mean that Mark and Matthew are at odds or contradicting each other? One says no sign, the other says a sign will be given. So which is it? Well, let's briefly start by discussing some reasonings behind why some textual scholars believe the synoptic gospels differ slightly in wording from time to time. Now, if you remember a few weeks back, I pointed this out at the end of one of Dave's messages. So remember what he said about all the textual critics. That's where we're kind of touching on here this morning. Based on some of the more up-to-date material that I have recently read, discussing the thoughts of scholars and specialists whose life and work has been centered on manuscripts, textual criticism, and things related to this topic, in a nutshell, it kind of goes like this as their conclusion. The first gospel to have been written was most likely Mark. In centuries past now, thoughts were that Matthew was written first. But since at least the early decades of the 1800s, the thought has turned to Mark being first. And then after that, Luke and Matthew were written. Now, decisions on which of those two were first are split. The thought process is that Mark offers more of a bare-bones outline format of things that had happened. His writing is more concise. And then along comes Matthew and Luke to write their account, and they did so with a copy of Mark in front of them, and then they added additional material to his basic outline foundation. Now, a wide range of scholars also believe in a two-source theory. 
They think that aside from using Mark as their outline, they also have a copy of a document known as the Q document. Now, the Q document is described as a sort of master book list of sayings of Christ, compiled from oral tradition over the years. Or, as the ever so uh, correct Wikipedia puts it, because we know that that's just, you know, that's where you go for all your answers. They say the Q source, also Q document, Q gospel, Q sayings gospel, or Q, from German, quell, meaning source, is a hypothetical written collection of Jesus' sayings. Q is part of the common material found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, but not in the Gospel of Mark. According to this hypothesis, this material was drawn from the early church's oral tradition. So the theory is Matthew or Luke took Mark's short gospel and, aside from writing from memory, had also pulled in more fuller quotes and additional details from what Christ did and said as recorded in this Q source, which they say explains why so much of Luke and Matthew agree with each other, where they may differ with Mark. While this theory of a Q source has been around since around the 1900s at least, no official copy of such a Q source has yet been discovered. It gets even deeper than this, though, because some scholars hypothesize a four-source theory, saying the content in Luke that is not in Matthew or Mark comes from the L source, L being for Luke. And the content in Matthew, not found in Luke or Mark, has come from the M source, M, of course, meaning Matthew. So they get this is the things that they talk about all the time. These types of theories, though, are just that, theories with no hard concrete proof, but just come from scholars seeking to make logical conclusions based on the manuscript evidence. Of course, they often make these deductions without any consideration for supernatural involvement, but that is a whole other topic. Now, in Matthew, the context of this sign continues by stating, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In reading that, as I did, a good amount of people when asked, what is the sign of Jonah, and what is it that Christ is speaking of when he states that, they'll say, well, like I used to, it's obviously the resurrection, because that is immediately what he is referring to in verse 40 with the three days and three nights reference. His forthcoming resurrection is therefore a sign to the unbelieving people that Jesus is the Christ. While there is a connection... And while the resurrection was a possible component, I now question if that is really what was meant by the sign of Jonah. And there are a couple reasons why I lean a different way. And the first one I wish to examine is related to the difference in the gospel texts. If we examine, examine the parallel passage in the gospel of Luke, we find it worded this way. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For the, as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And then Luke, like Matthew, continues on with the discussion of the Queen of the South and the men of Nineveh rising up in judgment against them. But as you see in Luke, there is no mention made of a three days and three nights clause, so the direct reference to a resurrection is missing and simply says, Jonah became a sign to the people. The time statement itself, missing in both Mark and Luke, actually, 
is found only in our text in Matthew and actually only in one of the places of the two in, mentioned in Matthew. Now, that's the first point that makes me think the emphasis on the resurrection is probably not tied to the sign question. But let's stop for a moment to examine this clause that only Matthew includes, as it tends to cause confusion in the minds of many readers. Let's look at why most likely this three days and three nights phrase appears in Matthew, but not in Luke. Who was the audience for Matthew's letter? Anybody guess? No? The Jews, the Jewish people who have Jewish descent, Christian Jews, whatever, but the people with the Jewish background. Now, who was the main audience for Luke's gospel? The non-Jews, <laughs> Gentiles and non-Jews, the Greeks or whatever. So, is there something about this phrase, this time phrase, that would be significant only to Matthew to include in his book to the those of Jewish heritage, but not for a book like Luke, which has written to mainly non-Jews? turns out there most likely is. When we modern readers read something that was something will happen in three days and three nights time, we immediately begin to think this is referring to a literal 72-hour period. But as usual, we must be careful not to put the modern understanding upon our ancient text like this, for that may not have been what the Hebrews had been understanding about this phrasing. Many scholars state that the term three days and three nights is in fact a Hebrew idiom an idiom being a figure of speech of sorts. So if this phrase is indeed a Hebrew idiom, it is entirely possible and likely that Luke skips placing it in his storyline because his Gentile readership may not fully grasp the Hebrew significance of it. The topic of idioms and similar ideas has been, of course, covered from this pulpit in the past, but just as a refresher, let us go down a quick rabbit trail at this point to look at the topics of idioms a little further. An idiom is basically a figure of speech that says one thing but does not literally mean what it says. We use these in our speaking all the time without even thinking about it. Every culture seems to have them. We might say something like, it's raining cats and dogs, yet we know this doesn't mean that animals are falling from the sky, but it's simply understood as a very heavy rain. I'm climbing the walls in here. No, no one is scaling up a wall. It simply means that they are very restless or nervous. Putting the cart before the horse, this means things are in the wrong order. A bun in the oven, or the rabbit has died. Both examples of terms used for saying someone is now pregnant. David has given the example of to kick the bucket. Is somebody really kicking the bucket? No, that's not what that saying means. Now, we could go on, and I'm sure if you stop and think about it, there are tons of sayings like that that we all employ on a daily basis that would fall into this type of category. Of course, you know, it's based on our culture and then circles we hang in with. They, you know, we, we have all kinds of little sayings like that that other people know. Now, when it comes to biblical writings, we likewise find the use of similar cultural idioms, metaphors, and symbolic terminology. And these are quite often missed and confused, too. We have covered extensive looks into a lot of these over the years from this pulpit. But for the sake of some of the new listeners, and since we are touching on this topic later anyway, I will briefly look at the topic now. One of the biggest topics of confusion today that stems from missing the cultural use of terminology tends to be in the realm of eschatology, or the study of the last things. Things like stars falling from the sky, or the sun and moon not giving the light, or other similar similar cosmological statements that have nothing to do with cosmological events, but in fact are terms relating to national judgment and destruction, and and not knowing their historical and cultural usage has led many to modern-day misinterpretations and confusions. 
So with this key understanding being missed by many modern readers, when you read a verse like Matthew 24, 29, they think it is speaking of a world-ending cataclysmic event. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is no more a reference to cosmological events than when these same terms were used in the story of Joseph in Genesis 37, where we are told, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and sisters. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Of course, we know that there was no confusion about the meaning of Joseph's dream by his family, for his father immediately exclaimed, But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? This type of symbolic language is used as a reference to leaders or powers who are falling from authority. In this case, the 11 brothers are representative leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. But they would one day come to bow low before Joseph. We know that to be the case if you keep reading, of course, and Joseph is, uh, ends up giving them the food and everything. So, nice story. Even our own American flag uses similar sim- symbolism to this by having a star that represents each individual state's political power. We find this type of symbolism time and time again through the Hebrew Scriptures, but I will mention just one for us this morning. Recall the verse in Matthew we just read a minute ago. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. To the first century Hebrew hearing this, they would immediately recall such similar language used to describe the fall of Babylon to Syrian to uh, Syrian the Persian in 539 BC, which described that political downfall in this way. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore, all, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be, a dark, as it, will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the, wick, the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogance and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place and the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Isaiah 13. Hopefully you picked up on some of the language terms that appear in the New Testament. Things like the birth pangs, the shakings of heaven, the stars darkened, etc., People read these in the New Testament, they jump to the assumption it's speaking of a literal, cosmological, ending, world-destructive event language. The problem is, it never did, and so it never does. It is a language of national judgment. Like I said, additional examples could be given, but hopefully this is enough to at least make the point on this little trail we are on. These are the types of symbolic uses common in the Hebrew Scriptures, which would have been fully understood to the Hebrew audience in the days of Jesus. The same can be said of the various idioms in use at that time. But while these types of things were common knowledge back in the, to the eras of Scripture when they were written and given, they often escape the knowledge of modern readers who uh, are, are not as well studied on the culture or language 
and don't know the idioms that the culture of that time produced in these writings. Well, our time phrase in Hebrew here may actually be yet another one that falls into the category and gets easily missed. The expression three days and three nights is an idiom which covers any part of three days and three nights, according to Bullinger. If that is indeed true, does that mean then that Christ did not have to stay in the realm of the dead for the full 24-hour day, for three full 24-hour days in order for the statement to be understood as true? Yes, that is what it is saying. When a Hebrew heard this, they would not have thought it meant a literal full 72-hour period that was being spoken of. In the Jewish culture of the time, it simply meant any part of a three-day period that was touched upon. Uh, commentator John Gill quotes from various Jewish sources to state it this way. To solve this difficulty and set the matter in a clear light, let it be observed that the three days and three nights mean three natural days consisting of a day and night, or 24 hours, and are what the Greeks call night days. But the term has no other way of expressing them, but the Jews have no other way of expressing them, but as here. And with it, with them, it is a well-known rule and used on all occasions, as in the computations of their feasts and times of mourning, in the observance of the Passover, circumcision, and divine uh, diverse purifications. That, that word means a part of a day is as the whole. And then it's got all those little references, which if you want to go look them all up. Uh, Gill then continues on with this thought, adding, And so whatever was done before sunsetting or after, if but an hour or even so small a time before or after it, it was reckoned as the whole preceding or following day. And whether this was in the night part or day part of the night day or natural day, it mattered not. It was accounted as the whole night day. By this rule, the case here is easily adjusted. Christ was laid in the grave toward the close of the sixth day, a little before sunsetting, and this being a part of the night day proceeding is reckoned as the whole. He continued there the whole night day following, being the seventh day, and rose again early on the first day, which being after sunsetting, though it might be even before sunrising, yet before a part of the night day following, so it is esteemed as the whole. And thus the Son of Man was to be and was three days and three nights in the grave, and which was very easily to be understood by the Jews. Commentators uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their series likewise agree. The period during which we, he was to lie in the grave is here expressed in round numbers, according to the Jewish way of speaking, which was to regard any part of a day, however small, included within a period of days as a full day. Many other commentators could be quoted that likewise spell it out in similar language, showing that the common Jewish computation of days makes this phrase more clearly to be understood as not literally a 72-hour period. Yet it feels weird to us, and I'm sure many of, many of our idioms and symbolic terminologies would sound weird to other cultures too. Honestly, the amount of time itself does not matter to my study this morning on the sign of Jonah because it would have been the same in both cases for Jesus and Jonah. But I wanted to present this idiom angle since I know some people have struggled with this timing of the event and this seems to be a historic view with scriptural backing as well. Now before leaving though, let's look at a couple of the other uses of this idiom in scripture that Bullinger and some of the others, other commentators have provided to back up this view. First we turn to 1 Samuel 30 where we are told of David finding a certain Egyptian. 
They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. So if he had not eaten or drank anything for three days and three full nights, then the day that they found him would have had to have been at least the beginning of the fourth day, since 72 hours had already passed. But we are in fact told in the next verse that it actually has been less than three days and not four, as we are told, and David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to the Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. So he fell sick and was just and was left just three days ago and not four, as the rationale is. The day of speaking is counted as one of those days. Another example used is found in Esther 4, where Esther tells her maidens that they are to fast for three days and three nights. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So, if we were to understand it literally, then the fast would be for a full 72 hours at least, meaning then and after that period, she would go to the king, which would be on the fourth day, the day after the full three-day fast. But in fact, the next verse tells us, on the third day, Esther put her royal robes on and stood in the inner courts of the king's palace. So again, three days and three nights equated to simply a three-day period or any part of those three days, since the fasting would have been done and over before a literal 72-hour period, as we would like to enforce on the text. Okay, now, for a very brief rabbit trail, yes, another one within the one that we're currently already on, but this one's related. What Bullinger states after this idiom talk, in example, in Matthew is revealing? Now, while it is... Nothing new from what has been spoken from this pulpit many times it is nonetheless something most people seem to be totally oblivious to when it comes to the New Testament text. Before reading his quote, though, let me just say, as one who monitors the church's social media platforms, most specifically YouTube, where our sermon videos are, but also Facebook from time to time in discussions, I hear the same thing echoed time and time again. Things like, the New Testament was written only in Greek. Everyone in that time period spoke Greek or Aramaic. Hebrew as a language was dead. Now, most of this gets railed against us because of David's use of the Hebrew terms Yeshua and Yahweh, making people think we were part of some cultic Hebrew roots movement. I had a conversation with a guy a couple months back on Facebook, actually, where I mentioned the Hebrew culture understanding of the manger and the whole nativity scene. And he went off saying people like me try to convert everything to Hebrew when it is obvious, he says, that God had by that time purposely converted everything from the people to the scriptures into Greek and that the Hebrew culture was dead and of no effect or influence on things by the time of Christ. So yes, when Dave consistently uses Hebrew names like he does or when he states things like how he feels at least part of the New Testament was originally written in Hebrew and later translated into Greek, it comes against a wall of opposition because people have heard for so long that everything was only in Greek. Well, Bollinger in the late 19th century knew differently even then when he said, in speaking on this verse in Matthew, now the New Testament is for the most part Hebrew in idioms but Greek in language. 
This is the simple explanation of the difference between it and classical Greek. Moreover, there is reason to believe that the first gospel, as we have it, is a translation from a Hebrew or original. He is not alone in this assumption, as I have read from other more modern New Testament and Hebrew scholars, that the New Testament is full of Hebrew idioms that, when translated into Greek, make very little sense. Yet, when you translate them back into Hebrew, their meaning is very clear. This gives them evidence of a possible Hebrew source that was later translated into Greek, most likely by a non-Hebrew who did not know quite how to handle translating the idioms. Okay, that's the end of the rabbit trail within the rabbit trail. So now we return to the initial one. Now, all of this to say, this verse in Matthew is using one such Hebrew idiom when it states that Christ will rise after three days and three nights. Again, if understood literally, he would not rise until after three full days and nights, meaning he would actually rise no earlier than the start of the fourth day. Yet scripture, time and time again, tells us he would rise on the third day. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You can't be raised on the third day if you have to be dead for a full three days and three nights, right? Yet it is worded differently in different places, and yet all of these can be understood as covering the same time period. In Matthew 27, 63, it says he will rise after three days. In John 2, 19, it says in three days. Yet the most common expression used at least 10 times is that it would take place on the third day, which again is impossible if we understand three days and three nights to literally be 72 hours. So when understanding this phrase as a Hebrew idiom, it appears to be that it appears to be, it does not require any kind of exegetical gymnastics to reconcile the three days with the rest of what Scripture tells us about his death being before Sabbath, Friday, and resurrection on the first day of the week, Sunday. It seems even his followers knew this when they ran into Jesus on the road on the day of his resurrection. And speaking of his crucifixion, they said, but we have hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So according to them, the resurrection was on the third day after the death and not the fourth. And we know that pretty much everywhere else in the Gospels, it is simply referred to as being on the third day. But the phrase itself that Christ uses here is what was used in the original story of Jonah, which tells us, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. One other side note of interest is that in Jonah 2, immediately following this verse, we have Jonah referring to his dilemma as, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out of the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So Jonah referred to his position during those three days and three nights as being in Sheol, which we know in Hebrew culture was understood as the final resting place of the dead, that realm of the dead that had power over mankind's soul. We also know they understood it to be located within the space under the earth, which coincides with what Christ said when he spoke of his three-day journey, stating, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Sheol, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. To go a little further on this, some scholars actually state that Jonah's words it this way because the people at that time believed that the entrance to the underworld, the realm of Sheol, lay deep within the waters. You may remember some months back, David talked about this. Um, we, say, we see a hint of this understanding revealed in Job 26, which tells us the spirits of the dead tremble below the waters 
and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before him, and there is no covering for Abaddon. There was even an ancient teaching that held that it was the three-day journey to get to and return from the underworld of Sheol. Since Jonah was taken down into the water's depths, he he possibly supposed he was being taken into Sheol itself, based on their beliefs, and maybe he actually was, since the verse does state, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Though he, of course, may have been speaking metaphorically at that point. So, that ends the first rabbit trail, finally, um, on idioms. We now return to the text directly. Let's return to why Mark said no sign would be given without any further qualifiers. There are many differing opinions amongst the scholars, but one I feel is a suitable answer. First, many people when they cross this verse wonder, how could the people have been so stupid as to ask for a sign, considering Jesus had been doing public miracles all over? While they may have heard news of many of these things, they themselves wanted to see an indisputable sign as proof. But they wanted one from heaven, not just a miracle from earth. Some scholars point out that in the Gospels, the term used here for sign is not the one that they tend to use for miracle, meaning what they wanted was not an everyday miracle, maybe not something that could be a sleight of hand or trick. They wanted something big from heaven to satisfy them. It is that sort of immediate sign that they would not receive, as Mark says. And so he leaves it at just that. He says, no, you will not receive what you have requested, period. The sign they would receive, though, would be not what they wanted either, but it would be all that they would get. As mentioned, we may be quick to jump in and say, but the sign was the resurrection, and that is what it feels like when you read Matthew. It seems in chapter 12 that leans that way. However, neither Luke nor Matthew 16, sign of Jonah references, have any such accompanying key words that might make that necessarily the case. Luke simply says Christ will, like Jonah, become a sign to the people. Did Jonah's sign relate to his being in the fish three days and three nights? I don't really think it was because we were given no evidence that the people of Nineveh would have even been aware of what Jonah had went through. You see, we are told that Jonah went through his ordeal, and after he was spit out on the beach, he rose up and began his travel towards Nineveh. Once he reached the city, which was a large city, he traveled a whole day. They said it was a three days journey from one side to the other. He traveled a whole day's journey into the midst of the city. And from what we can tell, no one would have even been privy to his whole three days in the fish ordeal that took place more than a day before Jonah even began preaching. So how significant would that part have been as a sign to the people? It was a sign to Jonah for sure, but not necessarily to everyone around him to know that he was a prophet of God as he stood up and started preaching in the city. So another option some consider as being the sign is that it is related to his preaching of repentance. An objection to that being the sign is that Christ had been preaching repentance for the whole time he's been preaching. And that is true, but I think there may be more to it than this, considering where the text continues from there. The one part that both Matthew and Luke are in agreement on is the repentance of the people, as we read in Matthew. The men of Nineveh shall rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, and they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. Both texts include these comments about speaking of the repentance of the people and the acknowledgement of the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus states that both of these traits would condemn his generation. Let's look briefly at the story of Jonah. 
Jonah was told to go speak to Nineveh, but he did not want to. Nineveh was one of the responsible was was the one responsible for the destruction of the northern kingdom of, of Israel. So obviously not a favorite people of the Hebrews. So Jonah did not want to preach repentance to them. Yet ultimately we know he did. And we know that Nineveh did repent and God did not destroy them, which of course did not make Jonah very happy. So the bottom line here is Yahweh provided forgiveness for the pagan nation that destroyed his people, something the Jews thought unfathomable. Interestingly, some sources note that rabbis and Jewish teachers tended to dislike Jonah for his disobedience on behalf of Israel and that he resented the offer of Gentile repentance because if successful, it would leave unrepentant Israel condemned. Now, I think that seems to be kind of a thrust of the point that's being made by Jesus. Just like Jonah's days, the preaching of Christ's message would end up going also to non-Israelites and offering them forgiveness just like Nineveh, while leaving the Israelites themselves condemned. Christ was preaching repentance to them, but many were not having it. After his resurrection, just like Jonah, the preaching would turn to the nations with the offer. This line of thought is continued in Paul, in, by Paul in, the, in Romans when he speaks of Israel and the message of the pagan nations, stating, But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found of those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to the disobedient, to a disobedient and contrary people. He points out that the message was there all along for Israel to see, yet they did not understand it. Paul's first appeal then is to Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Now, for those who are not aware, Deuteronomy 32 is one of the key texts where Yahweh first speaks of the ultimate end of his people of Israel. This is the first place in Scripture where discussions about the last days, as people call it, is mentioned. <coughs> it says, And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Of course, we know time and time again that Jesus calls a generation a perverse generation, echoing them back to what Moses said would come in their last days. Then Paul goes right into a quote from Isaiah 65, which is likewise a condemning verse against his people Israel, stating, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the days to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Again, if you go back and read Isaiah 64 through 66, these are the key chapters referring to the end of the national people of Yahweh, the judgment and rejection of Israel who will be replaced by a new people called out and chosen from amongst the Israelites as well as adding to them uh, Gentiles to create a people of a new name. This new people is significant because it is then in 66, Isaiah 66, referred to, this creating of a new people is referred to as God creating a new heaven and a new earth. Now most think when we get to the New Testament and find discussions of a new heaven and new earth that it is something new, 
that's being brought up, when in fact it is speaking of what was promised in Isaiah. It was almost 10 years ago now that I was moderating an online radio debate on eschatology. And I asked the speaker a question before the show, and I asked him, what was the relationship in your mind between Isaiah's new heaven and new earth and the new heaven and new earth mentioned in the New Testament? He truly shocked me when he said he felt there was no connection, that they were not related at all. As I said, ignorance of the Old Testament use of terms is a main cause of much folly in modern-day interpretations of these things. But when it comes to the topic of eschatology, it causes some really fantastical results, sadly. Isaiah 65 and 66 are the promise of a new heaven and new earth. And they promise, and the very promise being looked forward to in New Testament times. Sadly, ignorant of Israel's usage of this term, of Isaiah's usage in this term, has caused most people to assume the phrase in the New Testament is referring to a global restructuring of planet Earth, when in the context of Isaiah's prophecy, it is simply the changing and bringing in to God a people known by a new name. This, of course, lines up perfectly with the soon-expected new heavens and new earth that Peter was looking forward to in his generation, for he speaks of the people changed too and knows it is not some new prophecy, but it is, in fact, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, 2 Peter 3.13. Peter says it is a promise he is waiting for. But where was it promised? It seems modern-day interpreters, like the debate opponent, had no promise to connect it to. And then going back to the opening of Peter's second letter, who is he, who he addresses, who is he addressing? A new people for which he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He is speaking to a people who are unlike himself. He was a Jew with all the special benefits that God had given them historically. He is addressing those unlike him who did not have the special place with God, but now they have entered into a faith of equal standing to what he and the Jews have had. He is addressing a group most likely full of Gentiles, for he mentions in book two that this is the second letter he's writing to them. And so this is the same people who he refers to in letter one, where he says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Here he is calling them as exiles scattered in the nations, mingled and now considered by Jews to be just pagan nations. In their minds, these people were hopeless and outside the promises of God and the same as any other pagan nation. While they were indeed outside the benefits and people of God, in actuality, some of them were indeed inside the promises of God, laid out in places like Isaiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, and elsewhere. Those promises of God foretold by the prophets of old were beginning to take place at that time, and a new people was being called, and a new heaven and a new earth was being designed, and a new temple was being built of people, brick by brick upon the cornerstone of Christ, as Peter says in chapter 2 of his first letter. Hosea 2.23 spoke of the future day when the once rejected people would be remarried to God and returned to him. And Peter quotes this directly, stating it was occurring to those people he was addressing in his letters, telling them, once you were not a people, and now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul makes this same type of people distinction when addressing the Ephesians. 
as he lays out the blessings afforded, afforded to he and his fellow Jews in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, and then he turns to sing the praises of those who were not Jews who had come to the same faith as promised. He states it as, In him we, Jews, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, the Jews, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. In him you, the Gentiles, also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And like Paul mentioned in, in earlier in Romans 10 that we read, the Jews knew this grace to the Gentiles was coming, and so they really have no real excuse. But Peter states that in the past they looked deeply to try to determine when these events were to happen. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They knew it was coming. They just didn't know when, or at least they had been in generations before looking for its coming. And now it was here. The majority of the Jewish leaders seemed oblivious to all that was unfolding right in front of them. Even looking back at our sign of Jonah text from Matthew 16, he condemns them for not knowing that the time was upon them. He states, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test them, to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is an evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy weather, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. <clears throat> and again, note in this section of Matthew, no reference is made of the three days and three nights. He simply refers to the sign of Jonah to that audience. In doing so, at least for that audience who heard it, there was not a clear reference made emphasizing his coming resurrection. So while the resurrection of Jesus is a close parallel to the symbolic death and rising of Jonah, it seems clear that the actual sign of Jonah spoken of goes beyond that event. The resurrection came and went, and yet we have a large number of Jews who still were either oblivious to it or simply ignored it. They wanted a sign from God, something big from heaven, and while the resurrection was big to his followers, its influence still seemed limited in scope to the average person in the world at the time. Likewise, as mentioned earlier, we have no clear evidence in Scripture that the people within Nineveh are even aware of Jonah's three days in the fish. Well, a bigger sign was indeed coming, one from God, and Christ promised it numerous times. And it indeed was almost an identical promise that was heralded, heralded by Jonah against Nineveh. When Jonah snapped out of his rebellion and went to the city, we are told, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Nineveh was threatened with destruction, and that destruction was not accomplished because the people were, did repent. Well, to those people, that message of an impending destruction was a sign of Jonah as the being the prophet. And just like Jonah, Christ came preaching the same message to his generation. Jerusalem shall be overthrown. 
The Israelites believed Yahweh was on their side. They felt that he would never allow anything bad to fall on them. We see that in places like Micah 3 where it states, But they lean on Yahweh saying, Is not the Lord in in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. They believed it in their past, and yet he destroyed their city and put them in slavery to Babylon. How soon they forget the results of their evil ways, for the greater prophet was now speaking the same message to them. Their city will be destroyed, and as before, they were ignoring it. Yet again, they were deceived in thinking that while in their wickedness, Yahweh was still in their midst. And it was told way back then in Micah that even though they thought this, the next verse, verse 12 states, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a a wooden height. They wanted a big sign. Well, here comes Christ telling them that the promise was coming upon that generation. And it was the same message as Jonah, one of destruction. Sadly, this message was foretold of their end, as we saw as far back as Deuteronomy and hints of it throughout all the other prophets, yet still they missed it, and now it was upon them. Daniel foretold of their end, setting the date at 70 weeks of years. And here comes Jesus appearing smack dab in the middle of the 70th week, the final week, declaring the end. Or as Daniel stated it, all of the events that he had prophesied, including the time of the end, and that they would all be completed uh, when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all of these shall be finished. The Jews thought all was fine, just like Nineveh did before Jonah appeared. And here comes one greater than Jonah, giving them the sign, the message of destruction, and they weren't listening. Because of that, Nineveh would rise up against them. Jesus told them time and time again that their end was coming within a generation of his message, stating their disobedience would cause the kingdom to be taken from them and given to a new people. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Matthew 21. Parable after parable was spoken by Jesus, and the majority of the messages were regarding the impending destruction of Jerusalem and the people of Israel. The parable in the Gospel of Luke from cha- the parables in the Gospel of Luke from chapters nine through twenty were referred to Jesus were referred to as Jesus's lawsuit against Israel by Joel McDermott in his recent book Jesus versus Jerusalem, dealing with the parables of Luke. This sign of Jonah verse that we have been looking at the Luke version falls right in the middle of the series of parables given during Jesus' trip to Jerusalem. And while at times the leaders seemed to understand he was addressing his message against them, they still did not repent. Right after telling them of the sign of Jonah, he speaks of the light under a basket, which is what Israel was supposed to have been to the world around them. But they failed to be. And now Christ was the true light come to the world for all to see, and not just the Jews as they had thought. He then condemns them for their building of monuments to the prophets and claiming that they would not have taken part in the shedding of blood of the prophets had they been around back in the day. Jesus told them not only would they have played a part, but they were about to do the same to his people. says, therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. For the blood of Abel to the to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Not only would they be held accountable for their own sins, but he was declaring that all the blood of the people shed on the earth from times of old would likewise fall upon their heads. This was the final generation. They were the last days of Israel as foretold by the prophets, and they were going down soon. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood over under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Matthew 23. I believe the sign of Jonah is in fact related more to the message that Jonah proclaimed, which is pretty much equivalent to the message that Jesus gave. As Jonah's message was that Nineveh would soon be overthrown, Jesus' message was, your house is left to you desolate, Jerusalem shall be overthrown. Jesus continued through Luke with parables and teachings pointing to the sinfulness the people had continued in. And as you get further into the gospel, the destruction to come soon becomes more clearly evident. By chapter 20, Jesus speaks of the wicked tenants who were supposed to handle the vineyard, but instead they kill the servants and the heir. And when the master comes, he will destroy the wicked tenants and give the vineyard to another people. This is a clear reference to the imminent destruction of the Jews for their unfaithfulness and the bringing in of a new people. In Luke 21, he directly speaks of the destruction of the temple itself, their holy city. But let us join that story when it appears in Matthew, starting at the end of chapter 23. After Matthew 23, Jesus left the temple area in his discussion with those leaders, and his disciples pulled him aside after his declaring of Jerusalem to be left desolate, and asked him what would be the sign of this coming desolation, the end of the age of the Old Covenant. The Jewish leaders at the time wanted a sign that he was the Christ. Well, he declared their utter demise and destruction of their temple and covenant. And for that to come true in their lifetime would indeed be a fulfillment of such a desired sign from heaven. So his disciples asked, how would they know when these events were upon them? And And while he did not clearly tell the leaders what the signs would be, he did reveal them to his followers telling them throughout Matthew 24 the things that were not signs and the things that were. They, his listeners, would see wars and rumors of wars. They would be persecuted and put to death for his namesake. Yet when they saw the city of Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, they were to flee the city and head to the mountains. As Luke put it to his Gentile audience, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. These, those promises of destruction from the prophets of old were all coming true and falling upon the generation of the people hearing Jesus' words. He states that these events would include the tribulation and death of some listening to him, as well as the sun and moon darkened, the falling of stars, the shaking of heavenly powers, the sign of the Son of Man appearing in heaven, and more. All of these would be seen by those who were listening to him. And again, remember, these cosmological sounding signs of destruction are not literal cosmological happenings. They are like the idioms and metaphors we discussed earlier. They are terms used when speaking of national destruction. And at the end of all of these signs, he says, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all of these things take place. The disciples asked for signs of the end, and he said, here are some signs. And as for the timing of them, know they shall occur within the time frame of the generation of his hearers, for the time was at hand. While it is true that he couldn't tell them the exact day or hour of these events, that is not to be understood as as meaning he did not know the general time frame when they would happen. He couldn't give them the exact day and hour from a calendar, but he could tell them a distinct time period sometime within the current generation of those living and listening to him. Plus, it's interesting to note 
that Jonah gave Nineveh 40 days notice, and in hindsight we see that Jesus gave Israel roughly 40 years notice, just kind of the fun numbers there, before their destruction. It was basically considered a generation. So it is my opinion, at least at this present time, that the sign of Jonah is to be understood as relating to the similar message of destruction that Jonah and Jesus gave, more than it is to the resurrection symbolism between the two that most people seem to focus on most often. While the resurrection was a key event to his followers, and indeed a mighty sign itself, the impact and understanding on it, of it to the rest of the world seemed less influential at the time. The destruction of Jerusalem, on the other hand, would have been a significant event to a good amount of the world at large, as they were a large, well-known entity, just as Nineveh was in their day. For the people within the temple area, the Jews, the battle against the city would be seen, quickly seen as a sign of Yahweh's protection being lifted and of his wrath against them. To those who knew the promises of Scripture, knew that such an event would be the signal of the end of the Old Covenant and the establishing of a new, as promised also by the prophets. While I touched on it briefly earlier, I think the audience in the story stories are a bit significant. They're maybe not necessarily part of the actual sign being spoken of. As uh, Jonah had preached to a foreign people, a hated pagan nation, an enemy people hated by the actual people of God at the time. The repentance of Nineveh would have struck at the heart of the people of Israel to think that God would show mercy and acceptance of that pagan nation. It is as if they kept forgetting that they, Israel as a nation and people, were supposed to be a light on the hill. They were supposed to be a light of truth to the pagan nations, to bring them back into God's people. They seemed to fail to remember that when God first called Abram to be his chosen people, that he promised Abram that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The people were to be a light unto the world, a blessing to every nation. And as Isaiah records it, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Historically, the Jews had kept their light under a basket, kept it to themselves, rather than the light of the world as they were called to do. The Jews of Jesus' day were no different. They were an elite club, ignoring the pagan nations, despising them, abusing them in many ways. They claimed to be wise, having the oracles of God, a favored people by God. They took pride in their position. But their wisdom was ignorance when it came to the plans of God foretold by the fathers before them. Then Jesus came onto the scene as promised, and he was the true light to the pagan nations that Israel was supposed to have been. He came to be the true Israel, fulfilling the tasks that they were supposed to but hadn't and accomplishing the things that couldn't be done in the flesh. And he became the light to the world, that salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He, the seed of Abram, would be a blessing to the, all families of the earth. And when the message of Christ went to the pagan nations, it had a similar response to the people of Israel. It made them jealous. As Paul states in Romans 11, So I ask, did they, Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. While we do not know any details on how Jonah and his people responded to seeing God's mercy to Nineveh, we do see a glimpse of how it went after Jesus' day. From the days of Jesus and following, many people from both sides of the line, Jew and pagan, repented and returned to follow the true Israel. 
the Christ, the risen Savior. And from their day through ours, those people seek to continue to be the light of the world, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth as Yahweh had intended. Amen. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for being the light. We pray that we would reflect that light to the world around us. We thank you so much for the blessings that you've given. We just pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word. Help us to honor you in all that we do. And help us to be a blessing to all the generations around us. Amen. Mm -hmm.